welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Nathan Bedford Forrest pointed out an uncomfortable truth about war when he said, War means fighting, and fighting means killing. You and I may be fascinated by many aspects of the Civil War. Tactics, strategy, politics, heroism of the common soldier, and so on. But few of us care to dwell on the essential act of battle, the taking of human life. In his book, Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat, Dr. Jonathan Steplick addresses this topic head-on. We'll talk with him about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Same town as East Carolina University, but I'm not in my office this evening, nor am I speaking for ECU or for Pitt County or the uh, state of North Carolina or anybody else, just myself, and my guest certainly will do the same as always. It's the second show of the 16th season of Civil War Talk Radio 2019-2020, coming up on our 15th anniversary in a month, and um the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, Pirates played their opening football game last week and lost. 
And there's a hurricane coming to Greenville. Hurricane Dorian is on its way. I hope if you're listening to this anywhere in the path that you are safe and dry and all goes well. We are hoping that will be the case here in Greenville, but ECU is closed uh, for classes, not the university closed as a whole, but classes have been canceled for uh, tomorrow, Thursday afternoon, uh, September, that'd be September 5th, 2019, and September 6th, Friday, no classes. So I will be recording a lecture and my students will get to uh, get a uh, online instead of a face-to-face version of some of this week's uh, class. This being the first, uh, well, second show of the 2019-20 season, last week was the first one, but uh, if you had a chance to listen, you know that our our guest, uh, uh, William Glenn Robertson, was unable to be with us for health reasons. We wish him a speedy recovery. Hope he can be with us soon. His book on the Chickamauga campaign, River of Death, Volume 1, I'm finding to be excellent on the uh, operational level of Civil War uh, actions, campaigns, and highly recommend it. Hope we can talk to him soon. But that meant I didn't get as much time to chat with you last week because we turned it over to a recording of a conversation I had with Timothy Orr earlier this past summer in, in the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg. Uh, so I didn't get to tell you what I did on my summer vacation, which I know everyone is eager to find out. Uh, the most relevant historical thing was uh, I got a chance to teach a course online uh, for the first time that many people see as the wave of the future. Others are skeptical. I was of mixed mind, but thought I should at least try it, have an informed opinion about it. And there are some advantages to teaching online. You and I here are in contact online. This seems to work well for us. Uh, it's convenient. You can listen when you want. Students can view the lectures when they want. On the other hand, uh, there are negatives as well. There's a real lack of contact and direct interaction uh, between instructor and students in the online course. And perhaps the biggest uh, problem I found with it was that it's a great deal of work. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with working. I enjoy teaching, lecturing, and updating my lectures uh, every year. But recording them online requires a technological aspect added on to that. And uh, you, I I guess the appeal is once you've recorded all the lectures for a course, theoretically, you could offer the course next term and display the same lectures. But I don't think I could do that because things happen. History isn't static. Uh, What if there's some event relating to... uh, well, this, this was a course in American history, just the American history survey. So covering anything in the 20th, early 21st century, uh, suppose there's an impeachment. Uh, now I would have to talk about the Clinton impeachment, maybe the Johnson impeachment to bring the students' awareness uh, into context. But if I'm playing last year's recorded lectures, I can't do that. So uh, so the payoff is, is when you play them the second time, but I don't think that's really legitimate, so I don't know that I'll be doing that again. I will continue to communicate with you online and enjoy it thoroughly uh, as we're doing tonight. We'll be doing that for the rest of the season with a lot of other very interesting uh, books to talk about and guests to visit with. Uh, Gib Kennedy next week will tell us about the Letters of Barham Bobo Foster and his family, a book called South Carolina Upcountry Saga. 
the rest of the month of September, we'll see Jack Dempsey return to the show. He has a book about Alpheus Williams, the much underappreciated uh, Civil War general from Michigan. Matthew Fox Amato's uh, very visual book, Exposing Slavery, talks about photography and the birth of modern visual politics in America. And we'll start October with Jim Brumall and his book, Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. Interesting topic. All of these things uh, and more coming up in the season ahead. Hampton Newsom will be here this semester with his book on North Carolina in 1864. Very eager to talk to him about that. And you can find these all at impedimentsofwar.org website or the Facebook page, Impediments of War, where you can also find a link to a story that East Carolina University News Services did about uh, Civil War talk radio. I took the liberty of posting that there for your entertainment. Uh, My daughter, who is in public relations and social media, and thus understands more than I do about how the internet works, uh, posted on Twitter that her dad's podcast is dope, which I believe is a good thing. So uh, I was glad to, to see that. While you're at the uh, website page, you can also contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. Donate through the PayPal button there. If you're liking the show, want to see it go another 15 years, that'd be nice. Uh, consider contributing uh, 2 or $3 per show, uh, or per month for that matter. And uh, those small donations are both helpful in buying books or anything else because it's not a a real donation. It's just a gift and I can use it for anything. Uh, But they're also uh, good morale builders. Uh, They help uh, uh, as a reminder that, uh, that we're a community and you're enjoying the show. So do your emails. Please feel free to keep sending those. Well, lots more uh, to talk about the show, but it's time to move on and get to our guest this evening. Uh, he is Jonathan Steplick, author of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat. Uh, a, a new guest to the show and uh, someone I haven't had the opportunity yet to meet on the Civil War circuit, but look forward to doing so. Right now, Dr. Steplick, are you there? I am. Hello, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, So, uh, as I said a moment ago, I I don't think you and I have met at conferences uh, yet. And if I have, I I hope we haven't because I don't remember. But there's a lot of things (laughs) I don't don't remember. Um, uh, But do call me Jerry. Do do you go by Jonathan, John? Yes, Jonathan's perfect. Excellent. Uh, So, uh, Jonathan, uh, tell me a bit about your day job when you're not uh, writing this book. Uh, You're you're teaching uh, this semester? That's correct. I've got several classes at the University of Texas at Arlington. I'm teaching both halves of survey, so early U.S. history up to 1865 and since 1865. And... So far, I've got um, large classes, and they're filled with some very bright, um, very energetic uh, students. And I'm working with some great, I've got some great grads assigned to help out mm. in the classroom and some student mentors to help out the undergrads. So it's a, it's a wonderful lineup. Well, that sounds good. I, I really enjoy teaching the survey class myself. I, I 
continue to do it. It's it's in our department. It's not something that gets uh, you know foisted off on the new faculty. Partly because we don't have any new faculty. We've been shrinking for years. <laughs> uh, but if we did, uh, I'd still want to teach uh, the intro courses. Because, as you say, the students are, are bright and excited, and uh, it's all new to them. And uh, it, mm-hmm. it's, I, I, I'm glad to hear the excitement in your voice about that as well. Uh, in terms of Civil War interest, uh, obviously that, that's your, your academic interest based on this, this excellent book that we'll be talking about shortly. But uh, how did you come to be interested in Civil War era as an academic topic? There's there's definitely uh, a story behind that. Uh, the more I think about it, though, I've started telling people, in retrospect, it would have been stranger if I didn't get involved in history because my family appreciates history. It, it appreciates its own family history, genealogy, as well as the, the topic of history in general. So, in retrospect, it would have been strange if I didn't inherit some kind of appreciation. As far as what, you know, was the actual catalyst um, I remember it goes back to grade school, and I know for for many Civil War historians, especially, you know, we, we many of us tend to get the get the bug early. Right. I remember uh, reading the Encyclopedia Brown books in grade school. Uh, I got introduced, introduced to those in school, mm-hmm. and the opening story, the MacGuffin, if you will, is a sword supposedly belonging to Stonewall Jackson. And one of the kids basically gets defrauded based on this, this phony sword. Well, I took that, you know, who's Stonewall Jackson? And uh, my grandma Mona, my, my mom's mother, had this three-volume American history, a little encyclopedia set, you know, geared towards kids. So she, mm-hmm. she gives me that, and it kind of takes off from there. Not only that, uh, my mother's side of the family hails from Lincoln, Illinois, it's the only place in the United States named for Lincoln during his lifetime, as opposed to in memory of him. And so um, with that background, uh, Lincoln kind of looms large in, in your memory. So between yeah. the Lincoln fascination and learning more about the Civil War, it kind of snowballed from there. And then I was still a young Civil War buff. You know, it was a great, you know, the 90s were great. Um, for Civil War, you know, Glory had come out the previous, uh, you know, 1989. We had Ken right. Burns' Civil War. James McPherson's Battlecraft Freedom was a bestseller. We had the movie Gettysburg. We had Civil War Journal on TV. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember some of the historians, and I've had the privilege of meeting some of those guys who were talking heads, if you will, on there. And you see them talking about the Civil War. It says Civil War historian under their names. Like, oh, I want to be that. <laughs> and the rest literally is history. Wow, it's a great thing to fire the ambition with that. Uh, Lincoln College mm-hmm. is, is a great place. I I have an honorary doctorate from Lincoln College uh, because mm-hmm. it was chartered Lincoln University, so they can give doctorates. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they have a nice little Lincoln Museum there as well uh, on, on campus. They do, and my uh, my grandfather's uh, alma mater. So it's it's a small world. Yes, it, it's uh, the, the Lincoln emphasis is everywhere. So the tying in with that, uh, you know, many of us get the bug. We're interested in Civil War, uh, but not many people are willing to go directly into 
the the essential act of battle that is uh, killing other people. How did you come by that as a topic? That's got a, a well, similar to my Civil War interest, that's got kind of a specific reason and then kind of a broader reason. Uh, you know, like many Civil War buffs, I was attracted to soldiers and battles and things like that. One thing that sticks in my mind, I can remember, I need to find this issue. Uh, I, I looked at the, the Civil War glossies that are still with, you know, America's Civil War, mm-hmm. Civil War Times, and there was an ad for the Time Life Civil War series, which is you know, a treasure for any student right. of the Civil War to get their hands on. There was an ad for the series that has a quote in there um, it, uh, from uh, a series of letters between James and John Welsh. Um, they're from the Shenandoah Valley. One stayed in Virginia, one went to Illinois. They ended up on different sides of the Civil War. On the eve of the Civil War, the Illinois brother says, I would strike my own brother down if he dared raise a hand against the flag. Hmm. And he would be willing, you know, if his brother threatens the Union, if he's part of what he sees as treason, he would have to kill him. That, that visceral idea, that, you know, that basic idea, it's about, you know, killing in combat. That little elements like that stuck with me. I, I remember reading, you know, Red Badge of Courage and seeing adaptations mm-hmm. of that. And Stephen Crane has, you know, his character goes from running away to becoming this fighting machine who at one point wishes, you know, he's frustrated, he can't load faster, that he can't take out can't the enemy more people. with exactly. one blow. Now, it, but let me the, step in for a second, Jonathan. We're going to take a, a short break and come back uh, uh, and get the, the rest of the story of, of how we get to this topic and explore the topic in detail. Uh, our guest tonight, Jonathan Steplick, is the author of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jonathan Steplick, author of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat. Uh, We were just discussing how it was that this topic uh, came to be of interest. And Jonathan, you mentioned reading uh, quotes from uh, letters exchanged between brothers in 1861, expressing the willingness uh, to kill even one's own brother if he if he took the other side. Did you find, uh, I, I guess that brings us to the question of, of sources and, and the letters that you read for this book. Uh, what Did you expect to find a lot of discussion of, of the actual uh, act of battlefield killing in soldiers' letters? That was one of the unknowns going in. And depending on the source, Civil War soldiers' letters are interesting or fascinating. Mm-hmm. And some men, you can expect, they're, they're talking about very day-to-day things. Sometimes the concern is just, how are you doing, you know, getting word back to the folks at home, what are things happening back home, and are they going to talk about something as, as deep as that? Of course, Civil War soldiers do write very deeply about other topics, too, and it's a wonderfully literate generation. It, mm-hmm. it varies from source to source. Some men were very candid about their thoughts. Others didn't address that or, or were more reticent about that. But in my experience, any source I delved into, if it was, it was meaty enough, chances are it would give me something. Maybe not. There's a handful of sources that were just gold mines in terms of, you know, I killed in battle or actually thinking about that sort of thing. But oftentimes, even if a soldier didn't explicitly talk about that, there were things I could glean about the language they used or the other kinds of feelings they expressed that, that often found its way into my body of research. Now, one of the things that I was curious about when I started reading this was the question of how many soldiers actually did uh, kill an opponent or know that they had killed an opponent. And uh, you address, when you talk about the historiography, the work of S.L.A. Marshall after the Second World War, who controversially asserted that most American soldiers didn't aim and pull their triggers uh, in an attempt to intentionally kill an enemy. Only 15% actually did most of the fighting. Uh, and you talk about that book, and of course about David Grossman's book uh, on killing, perhaps the, the seminal work in this this topic in military uh, uh, killing. 
did how did those uh, did did that research apply to what you were finding? So the other half of the story of how the book came to be is I actually mm-hmm. I read Dave Grossman's book on killing. Exactly. It was in my master's program at, at Penn State, incidentally, um, mm-hmm. where I became fast friends with uh, last week's guest via recording, Tim Moore. Yes. I was in Dr. Carol Reardon's uh, graduate seminar on military history, and part of the course, we read different books and brought our findings back, and one of the ones I picked out was Grossman's on Killing. And mm-hmm. The subject of the book is, what, how do men feel about killing in battle? And I was in search of a topic, and it just clicked in terms of my past, the way my interest in the Civil War was oriented, and then here it was kind of codified as a topic, what he calls killology. So what Grossman built on, and then especially his book itself, was very much the the foundation for me essaying this book of mine. Mm Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, th- I think uh, Grossman's book is, is absolutely a, a seminal book and one that, uh, uh, that, even though it's not about the Civil War per se, it's hard to imagine understanding the Civil War without reading uh, a, a book like that uh, before your book came out, certainly. Uh, but both he and, and Marshall do make this argument that uh, a lot of soldiers in the 20th century, which is what they're discussing, uh, don't in fact, try not to kill the enemy. And, and that didn't seem to be what you were finding. No, many of the, the, much of the framework that Grossman talks about did fit with my findings, but the basic idea mm-hmm. that there's this huge majority that actively try not to fight, that did not square with what I found about Civil War soldiers. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially a, and I'd be the first one to say, you know, they're looking primarily at 20th century soldiers, I'm looking at 19th century soldiers. And there's some timeless elements, but there's also some timely elements that differentiate the two. And broadly speaking, as far as Civil War soldiers go, what I found was, one, you've got considerable factors reinforcing, positively reinforcing the idea that they should participate actively in combat, up to and including killing And when it comes to actual combat, in many ways, the conditions of the Civil War um, reinforce that in terms of getting them to fire, getting them to actually fight, as well as potentially shielding them from the the negative aspects that make killing in battle potentially disturbing to to soldiers and other kinds of combatants. So how, how does that work out? Spell that out if you could. In terms of what shields them, so it's, there's, there's this natural aversion. It's, it's, most people don't have experience with, with violence, with killing. That's, that's, and it's a taboo for, for humans' right to kill our own kind. In the Civil War, one, you know, to contrast it with what S.L.A. Marshall posited for World War II, Civil War tactics, there's, there's strong emphasis on what Marshall would recognize as fire control. A lot of the firing is controlled by your officers, right? You often you fire on command. Um, it might be in unison. So there's less of a sense of personal responsibility. It's very much a group effort at the same time. Civil war combat. Often we're dealing with black powder weapons. They make white smoke. 
often the distance involved and that that literal fog of war, uh, there's a strong chance that you don't necessarily know what your shot, what your bullet does. So there's a kind of group absolution. You've got pause reinforcement to, to do it, to carry out the act, and you aren't necessarily getting hit by the negative knowledge of that you're causing harm or death to a, a fellow human being. Now, this gives soldiers a, a way out, certainly, but it seems like a lot of them would, would need that way out. One of the points you make is that the Civil War takes place at a time when Americans uh, are more overtly religious, perhaps, than any time uh, before or possibly since, and uh, a lot of them have, have to reconcile what they're doing with the, the Sixth Commandment, uh, translated in the King James Version of the Bible as, Thou shalt not kill. There, there's not much ambiguity there. Uh, how, how do they reconcile their, their, their Christianity with, with, they shall kill? That's, that's very important. And in one of the introductory chapters, I talk about, okay, what are the factors that influence them? Before they become soldiers, what are all the factors that influence how they feel about combat? And as I kind of assembled this picture, most everything kind of points them to doing this combat duty. And the one, as you said, the one roadblock, the main roadblock, I should say, the main roadblock they encounter is a religious prescription against killing. As you said, the sixth commandment of the King James is thou shall not kill. The, even, if, even as that was a roadblock, even that, that was a mixed question uh, because it led some men to believe, well, maybe there's something wrong about killing in battle. It doesn't seem very Christian. Uh, it is an ambiguous question because if we, if we parse the biblical language, you know, scholars tell us it's, it's really thou shall not murder, which is a different question than simply killing. And if you look at the other factors, and even the religious factors, well, there's a Christian tradition of just war. These are men from a society, the, the American Republic, it wants to be at peace with the world, but much of American history within those first you know, four score years has been war. The nation's been born out of a revolutionary conflict. It's, it's preserved itself, expanded through conflict. And that has positive reinforcement. Um, there's a sense of, of duty uh, towards the country of, of putting down what they see as evil. If you go within the biblical context too, the, uh, the, the Hebrew people, they conquer the promised land through battle. They have, victories over their enemies. Uh, David smites Goliath. Uh, Samson smites Philistines. So there's this tradition of kind of Christian warrior-ness that also pervades. And it's possible for some soldiers to see these, these different attitudes. Is killing in battle murder? Is killing in battle uh, a duty for the citizen soldier? It's a, a complicated topic that soldiers had to work their way through. The word murder in that context is interesting. I, you have a chapter where you talk about the language the soldiers use, and uh, I, I want to say I agree with your interpretation that when uh, someone like D.H. Hill 
says uh, the Battle of Malvern Hill, it's not war but murder, uh, that he's not criticizing the Yankee soldiers for killing his men, that they're murderers. He's perhaps implying Lee shouldn't have sent those troops up the hill. That was that was murder. Uh, but, but it's not really a judgment. It's more a description. And uh, I, I just say that because there's uh, an entire book, uh, uh, Harry Stout's book on uh, – on the altar of a nation where he talks about the religious interpretation of the war. And I think he gets it completely wrong where he, he thinks Hill is saying this is illegitimate killing taking place in this battle. Uh, but the word murder does imply there's such a thing as illegitimate killing too, doesn't it? True. Absolutely. And that's another part of the book too, is there's, there's a, a spectrum of killing. There's what I call the extremes of killing where, men engage in what's considered unlawful killing in war. And then the other extreme is when men hold back, when they restrain themselves and they do less than try to kill their enemies. What so that's an example? Or go ahead. Yeah. Oh, as you suggest, I would, I would agree that when someone like Hill says it's not war, but murder, it's the men are kind of being, their lives are being thrown away in a fight that they don't really stand a chance in. In that same, so the context of that quote is the Battle of Malvern Hill, and the same occasion, Hill pays tribute to the Union artillery about their their prowess and efficiency. So he doesn't hate them per se. It's that this is a fight in which the the soldiers in the assault don't really stand a chance. Yeah, and you contrast that with uh, a quote from from Sherman saying a soldier who was killed by stepping on a landmine, which were a novel weapon, uh, he says, that's murder. That's, that, that's a different quality. That's a, a kind of illegitimate killing. Right. And it sometimes surprises people that, you know, the soldiers had these standards. Well, soldiers do have these standards. We, there's, you know, as, as Winston Churchill says, if you have to kill a man, it costs nothing to be polite. <laughs> and soldiers in combat historically they see you know a certain kind of legitimate killing and then there's other kinds of conduct that is beyond the pale and mm-hmm. not to be tolerated it's not, they do not deem an acceptable form of, of combat and certainly that kind of use of a hidden explosive device would be one um, there are lots of stimulating questions that this book raises. I'm looking at a, a page of notes. We've just got a couple minutes till our next break, uh, and I don't want to jump into a, a big weighty topic and then have to cut us off in the middle. Um, let, let me ask quickly about, uh, you, you said at the other extreme, there are soldiers who, who, uh, who don't kill. Uh, you said there are extremes of illegitimate killing, but there's also extremes of at the other end of the spectrum, soldiers not killing at all. What? What? How? How does the soldier avoid killing in battle, or under what circumstances? A great example is I found Civil War soldiers had a, a great um, proclivity to take prisoners, and hmm. which you can't guarantee because in the heat of combat, you know, you have to make this switch from kill the enemy to don't kill. Mm-hmm. And there's many circumstances which you wouldn't blame the soldier. One of the best examples. The Iron Brigade, or I should say the 6th Wisconsin and some of their um, neighboring regiments, 6th Wisconsin at the railroad cut, they, they take these casualties, they're assaulting the Mississippians in the railroad cut at Gettysburg. They take these casualties, all of a sudden they reach the railroad cut, they're upon the Confederates, and at this point they could just 
The Confederates are now trapped in the cut. They could just be shot down at will. But there's this general cry among the soldiers, throw down your arms. And they've got leveled weapons at the Confederates. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of these tense moments. And if, if one thing were to go differently, you know, you could have this you know, pour this point-blank volley into the enemy. But there's this sense among the men that, you know, throw down your arms, we'll take you prisoner. And I pair that with, I found a, an incident at Chickamauga. I, I tried as much as possible to pair incidents like these Union soldiers, Confederate soldiers, because there is kind of this parody. Very similar incident at Chickamauga, where the Confederates have Union troops dead to rights. They could just unleash a terrible point-blank volley. And instead, you know, fingers are on triggers, hammers are cocked, and they say, you know, surrender. And it happens, and men's lives are spared. That was an interesting scene. It, it called to mind uh, uh, the scene in, in the movie Glory that you referenced uh, a few minutes ago, where you have uh, the 54th Massachusetts and a Confederate regiment just coming up out of the woods in a foggy uh, day, and the, the two are suddenly lined up, fingers on triggers, just yards away from each other. I've, I always thought that was somewhat fictionalized, but your description of the Chickamauga incident seems like a, a similar one in a way. Uh, with in, in this case, without the element of race to complicate it, in the one you describe, uh, the soldiers willingly say, we don't have to go through with this. We'll both get killed. Let's, how about if you surrender, because we've got you. Um, I do want to ask you about uh, race, which you have a, a very interesting chapter about, and many other things as well. But we're going to take another short break. We'll come right back, talk more with our guest tonight, Dr. Jonathan Steplick, author of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers, and the Nature of Combat. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited. Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Dr. Jonathan Steplick, author of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers and the Nature of Combat. Uh, we were talking at the end of the last segment about times when soldiers didn't kill each other, uh, including the taking of prisoners. When somebody says to me, you know, is, haven't you read everything about the Civil War? Is there anything new to be written? And I will say, you'll, you won't believe how much new comes up conceptually every year and uh, Jonathan your point about switching from being a a, a combatant to uh, to taking a prisoner or becoming a prisoner is a phenomenon that that really hasn't been looked at uh, until Dave Silkenat's uh, recent book uh, dwells on that and analyzes it for the first time and you highlighted in your book uh, but you know, up to this time, for 40 years, I've just been reading, oh, they took some prisoners and never gave it a second thought. Um, I want to ask you, uh, uh, we're talking about different, uh, the spectrum of, of killing, uh, from legitimate to illegitimate. Uh, one phenomenon uh, that I talked about with, uh, with your friend Tim Orr last week uh, was sharpshooters at Gettysburg in particular, but we talked about them elsewhere. And you have a, a chapter about that. Uh, the general impression one gets from many books is the soldiers thought sharpshooting was illegitimate. Shooting at an individual, not just firing into a cloud of smoke, uh, was somehow wrong, and the soldiers didn't like sharpshooters. Uh, uh, that, that I was surprised that you have a different conclusion about that. Right, and it with other elements of, of that story, it, it's, it's complicated. Uh, one of the interesting things that I found in doing my research, some of the familiar quotes in which uh, we have soldiers saying, you know, sharpshooters are terrible. In fact, I hate sharpshooters on both sides. One, one Army of the Potomac artilleryman says, you know, I was, either side, I was always glad to see them killed. And there are soldiers that feel that way. One of the things that was interesting in my research is that you know those those quotes were said and they reflect a particular standpoint. But I noticed a lot of scholars were quoting the same guys, the same several guys. Now it's not to say that there were only those many guys saying that sort of thing, but you find so many other soldiers who admire or aspire to that. And when it, part of that is the the tradition of American history, um, both sides mythologized the rifleman from the American Revolutionary era. Uh, and we know the, the revolution was about so much more than that, but the American rifleman, the marksman, uh, is already this established figure in the American mind. And, and of course, Tim Moore is one of the authorities you can go to on Berdan's sharpshooters. You look at when Berdan's sharpshooters were first recruited, they get... You know, between the two regiments, 10 companies from across the country. And there's a, a great cover on Harper's Weekly. You know, these guys are on the cover, and there's, there's nice society folks watching them, doing their range estimation, their target practice. And it's clear this is, you know, 
society at large doesn't think this is necessarily a terrible thing. Uh, Abraham Lincoln pays a visit to the sharpshooters camp and they have a target set up, a kind of crudely drawn effigy of Jefferson Davis. And Lincoln thinks it's pretty funny when uh, Hiram Burdan puts a shot right next to the eye. Um, he's laughing kind of because it's like a, that was probably a, a really <laughs> lucky shot. But um, So you have some men who, and especially you see it in the trenches, you know, you, when, in which you can be killed, you know, just raise your head too far in the wrong place. Soldiers certainly don't like being under what we would call sniper fire. At the same time, you look at, say, the Siege of Vicksburg, and I actually have a, an essay on that, Sharpshooters at Vicksburg, coming out um, in uh, the Civil War in the Heartland series. <laughs> and many of them, that Union soldiers, they go down to the trenches with pockets full of ammo, and that's kind of how they spend their day. They, it's, it's kind of this this dangerous sport of dueling with the Confederate sharpshooters. So by and large, there's, there's individual hostility towards sharpshooters, but uh, societally and among many soldiers and in terms of raising regiments of sharpshooters, it's, there's a great deal of legitimacy Civil War Americans attached to it. And that's one of the things, that's one of the conclusions I was really excited to make because that seemed to be that seemed as you suggested seemed to be pushing back against what we always thought we knew. Let me ask a, a methodological question. The the example of the sharpshooters where you discover yes, there's there's primary source evidence that soldiers don't like them, but there are only two really well known quotes and they keep appearing again and again. That's um, one of the dangers of, of a sort of anecdotal approach of, of getting snippets out of letters and diaries and memoirs uh, that relate to one's topic. Eventually you get, uh, in the old days, a card file full now, a computer file full of material relevant to that, and then you write your book from it. And, and many of us have written books that way and continue to do so. Uh, there's a risk, however, that you can find whatever you're looking for. And uh, you know, people have found two quotes saying sharpshooters are bad, and those kept getting replayed. In contrast, there's the, the, the what they used to call the cleometric approach, where you, you actually count things up. And you did this in, in the book where you uh, refer to, uh, in the chapter on language, the phrase good execution. Uh, you say that that showed up 200 times in the official records. Uh, it, so... Instead of thinking, oh, this author has just found an interesting phrase that he likes, I don't know, it's 200 times, okay, that's legitimate. The, the, this is commonly used, now I want to know more about it. Uh, how, how did you think about that methodologically between being able to say I have, on, on any of the points that you make uh, that are qualitative, how, how do you know which side has a preponderance of the evidence, or is there enough evidence to draw a conclusion? I would say my my approach is qualitative. Uh, I appreciate your your compliments. There, I'll be the first to say there's many scholars who can crunch numbers better than I. Mm-hmm. But as far as the sharpshooter question, you know, I, I kind of brought with it my own skepticism in that, you know, knowing what I know about American history and Civil War soldiers, and it's it's a wonderful privilege where part of your job is reading their stuff. Mm-hmm. 
knowing what I knew, it seemed like, well, there's, there's got to be more to the story than that. And as a good historian, you check the sources, too. And that's how I stumbled on this fact that, well, we're, we're quoting a lot of the same guys. And like I said, those are legitimate quotes. I mean, we should, I, I, I look at those quotes because we have to understand where those guys are coming from. And, right. and there's good, you know, it's not to say a historian shouldn't use those guys. There's historians I, um, whose works were indispensable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but a large part of my ref- methodology was just getting my hands and eyes on as much as I could. And it's interesting too, like when you, even when you find the soldiers who don't like the idea of sharpshooting, doesn't sit well with them. Sometimes like one of my Vicksburg soldiers, he's, he says something to the effect of, well, I don't like it, but all the other guys, that's what they like to do is go down to the trenches and, and shoot at the reps. So you have a soldier who basically tells you, you know, he's an outlier. Mm-hmm. And, and that does it's interesting how you, you put these stories together. Now, whereas throughout the book, we get a nuanced view of soldiers who are uncomfortable with killing, but they are able to rationalize it, or some who, who relish not the actual killing, but they believe in their cause or defending their home so strongly that they're... Uh, enthusiastic about it even, uh, if not at least comfortable with it. Uh, but then we get to the, uh, uh, the the section where you talk about the United States colored troops and their white southern opponents. And here it seems like ambiguity and nuance falls away and we have uh, two groups of soldiers who do not see any limit in killing one another, who see no restriction and no reason why they should not indulge in it uh, without limit, including killing prisoners. Right. It's, it's a very stark difference. And when you piece together that part of the story, so when Lincoln's government makes a decision to enlist African-Americans as soldiers, so much of the Confederate South treats it essentially as a war crime. You know, how dare you send this members of this slave race and arm them against us? And you see that in the Confederate government's policy. You know, they say we're going to re-enslave anybody we capture, or if they're not slaves, put them to death. We want to put to death any white officer in charge of them. And, and Lincoln quite resolutely pushes back against that policy. He threatens retaliation. But the, the Confederate government could retreat from that policy in, in part because that among too many of the Confederacy soldiers, that same attitude of this is un- intolerable. We can't, you know, we, how dare they send our slaves against us as soldiers. And there's that hatred causes them to do terrible things in battle and take no, take a no prisoners approach. And for African-American soldiers, with knowing what the stakes are, having the the background of what slavery is doing, what it represents, and and knowing as these battles start to happen, knowing the kind of atrocities they face, such as those at Fort Pillow, you get this tit for tat response. You know, if they will give us no quarter, we will ask no quarter. And that's the kind of cycle you see, not just in the Civil War and other conflicts, when both sides take off the gloves. Uh, when both sides, you know, one side starts to set aside certain rules than the other, and it, it gets very fierce at that point. 
We have just a couple minutes left. I, I do want to ask this question, uh, maybe a difficult one, but I'm curious to get your response. Um, so at the very start, a lot of us, during the introduction, a lot of people, including myself, study the Civil War. We get satisfaction and enjoyment, entertainment, enlightenment from doing so. Um, should we have any qualms about this? If, if a reenactor or a collector or a war gamer or an author or just a reader uh, is gaining vicarious pleasure from this, from reliving vicariously the deaths of these men in battle over and over again, uh, are, are we perhaps not fully aware of what we're doing? Do we need to be more sensitive to that? There's room for sensitivity. I'm not one personally to, you know, wag my finger and say, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't get some enjoyment out of this or don't, you know, don't find this engaging or rewarding because it, it certainly is, you know, I'd be, I'd have to point the finger at myself. It's a question, you know, see the full picture. One of the things I talk about the book is we talk about soldiers, you know, fighting and dying, right? And we kind of make them passive participants as if the war is something that, you know, happens to you, you get swept up in it and you, you have to survive. Well, that's part of it. But part of it is what do you do? What is your duty? Um, do you, know, how do you conduct yourself in battle? One of the things, you know, in military history, well, we want to appreciate not just, not, this just as lines on a map, you know, the blue line meets the red line and one line retreats, but these are lines made up of, of individuals who react as, as human beings. So on one level, we certainly have to appreciate, we don't want to get rosy. Um, we don't want to, um, we don't want to sugarcoat it. We don't want to pretend it was a, a bloodless affair with no human mm-hmm. cost. There's very real human costs, but at the same time, the, the soldiers themselves were able to appreciate what they and their their comrades had done, and and to the same extent, we see this you know that spirit of reconciliation. They're able to, you know, they're they're soldiers for the working day. Um, they're able to, in many cases, fight each other bitterly and take lives during the war and after the war. We also see a more humane side. So it's a question of seeing the full picture. Mm-hmm. Certainly it should be, you know, we, our, our attitude should be realistic. Um, but the, the generation who actually fought the civil war found it fascinating and compelling. And <laughs> to some extent wanted so, to be so, able to relive it, you know, relive the good elements. And, you know, and, we've got and the in that sense, soldier said, I'd say in, in that sense, if they can do that, then we, we ought to be able to also. I would like to go on further with this. Unfortunately, our hour has flown by. We are out of time. Uh, and uh, listeners, you will have to get a copy of Fighting Means Killing, Civil War Soldiers, and the Nature of Combat. Uh, read all of it uh, and get the rest of the detail from it. Uh, a fascinating book. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.